0: Now we've got some. We've basically got you know some of the best technology in the market, and we're using it to to make people's lives easier and better. Um, and it's a really big financial problem for people on a day-to-day basis. And if that can be less of a problem for people,
1: this is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we'll continue the conversation with tech founder Vincent Turner. We hear about what motivates him in his career, how he began his property investing journey over 20 years ago and what makes him stand out as an innovator in the industry. Turner enlightens us on the tools needed to successfully invest in property. And how it can all go wrong.
0: And there's probably some general rules as well. I think if you, if like, don't put yourself in a position where you have to be a forced seller. Understand that you know the interest rates at two point six nine, whatever they are, variables at the moment. I mean, if that goes back up to four percent, can you afford to pay this thing or not? Like at the moment, I'm going back to four days a week can I afford to continue paying my mortgage at four days a week instead of five days a week? That's a reality for a lot of people now. I'm super happy with that outcome, but like not understanding how, if this, then that, how that affects your ability to maintain the investment that you have so that you can choose when you exit that investment, um, I think is a really, really critical critical learning. And I think the other thing that people tend to do is they, um, you know, everyone's optimistic in the future tense, you know? Like, we get upset by the thing we've done wrong, but then we get, oh, I'm totally never going to do that again. You know, I'm totally going to make sure I stop drinking coffee for a year so I can go to Italy, you know, next year or whatever, right? And we're not. We don't, we don't follow through with those things. And so, if you, I've seen a lot of people who invest in property and they get ahead of themselves, you know. They, they, they're out and they've got two and they move them to both to interest only so they can get four and now suddenly they've got four at interest only and then lenders turn around because APRA tells them that you need to price interest only more heavily. And suddenly interest only loans all go up seventy basis points, and now they're underwater and they've got to sell two of them and not in a good market. Like, why would you do that to yourself? Just get two and just, just keep growing the equity in those, adding value to them. Sell one, buy a bigger one. You know, you can't manage four unless you're a full time property investor anyway, which I think most people shouldn't be. Could be
1: a controversial opinion. He speaks about acquiring his fourth investment property.
0: I came back from San Francisco and raised money for you know. Uh, and like Westpac's a major investor in, you know, and it like the thing that I hadn't done in my previous companies was pay myself properly. You know, at that point, I'm 38. I've got 20 years experience doing what I do. I'm fairly competent at what I do. Um, And I was sort of, I I wanted to, I I wanted to like, you know, I wanted to have some stability in my own life. And so, you know, I basically landed in a position that meant that I was getting a, a normal salary for a person of my Position, seniority, experience, whatever. Um, and uh, weirdly, i decided that I wanted to live in the inner west. Not weirdly in the, that I'd always lived kind of in the in the city or in the inner east. Um, and after San Francisco, I wanted to find a kind of a weirder, quirkier kind of place. And so I sort of was thinking about Roselle and Lilyfield and places that are kind of kind of these kind of bendy streets and you know kind of funny thing going on. Um, and I ended up finding a rental property on Gumtree uh that and a guy was like uh that was renting and i didn't know him obviously uh and and it was a place with a lot of light and my place in san francisco had a lot of light i was there with a food photographer it was this big warehouse with these massive windows and i wanted to recreate that kind of vibe and he had this place that was like a two-bedroom apartment on top of a building and i was like that sounds freaking awesome like baller and so i I was like, hey, how are you going? And I turned up with a couple of ciders. I'm like, I really want to get this place. And he's like, yeah, okay, sounds good. And so we end up living together. And about three months after I've moved in there, I'm walking home one day and I see there's a real estate agent on the corner. And I see our house listed for sale. I'm like, oh, our place is for sale. And uh, and I went back. I'm like, hey, our place is for sale. He's like, yeah, but we've got the lease. We're cool. I'm like, no, no, we should buy it. Like this place is cool, you know. Um, and I had no idea what it was going to look like. Uh, and... Like at that point, I was obviously working in mortgages. I understood the mortgage process really well. And this place, if you want to run the number on it, like it's a it's a block. It's the standard like Parramatta Road thing. There's one commercial residence downstairs. There's three floors of residential apartments, and then it's the whole top floor of the building. The property itself is is titled such that you you know it can only be one residence, but you can you can kind of it's kind of like a house on top of a building, right? Um, and so that was attractive, this idea that you had a place that was two to three kilometres from the city, that it was right near a major university and major medical facilities. So if they, you know, it's going to be a good rental. Um, there's a long-term plan to green that corridor from Parramatta city to Parramatta Road, along Parramatta Road. So there's infrastructure development. It's next door to a school that's never been built out and knocked down. It's been there for 150 years, heritage listed. It backs onto a park. It's 15 minutes from Newtown. and 15 minutes from Annadale. I've got a whole bunch of... Good stuff, right? And I live there, so I'm like, this place is cool. Um, what was challenging about it is that the title is a, a weird title that the banks don't really like. Um, it's a thing called a stratum title, um, which is effectively means it's a self contained lot and it's part of the strata, so it's part of the building, but it's also, it, I get a water bill. Like most people in a strata don't get a separate water bill, they get, you know, they basically have water usage. Um, and so it's it kind of weird in that way, and that the challenge was. And the reason why it had been on the market for over a year was because I don't think anyone could negotiate or navigate the problem with the bank. Because if you went to the bank and said, I want to buy it, they'd go, I oh, don't really like that title. Um, being a mortgage broker, I was like, I think I can navigate this. And it took me three months to navigate it. Um, and I didn't have any money. I had to borrow the, the deposit from my friends and then pay them all back. Um, so that was lucky. Um, but I've now ended up with this two-bedroom apartment on top of a building that I can probably do some stuff to add more value to. Um, you know it's got district views it used to have city views but they just built a place next door and live in the dream and like you know like at the yield on it like i don't rent it at the moment but um i think it would probably rent for about four four two like and like the purchase price of about 1.3 um so like it would like in a normal market it would probably be on a four percent gross yield
1: Turner had to get some help in order to convince the bank to lend him the money for his property.
0: There was two challenges. So this particular title, the banks are like, they, they, it can be problematic and so I had to step through the things to understand what those problems might be and I actually had to engage a lawyer to do that. I had to get a property lawyer to go through and say these risks that can happen with this title and they happen with stratum title or company title or purple title, um, These they're not as watertight. As kind of strata title which is very clear that you have this thing and have all these rights within this kind of floor space or whatever um, and so I had to navigate the actual the strata corporation documents to go are these actual risks for this particular property and the way that the strata was set up is that for those things those risks to eventuate like hey you've got the access to the lobby lift lobby on level 4 and it comes in it's your exclusive use but the body corporate could take that away from you. The strata commission, the strata corporate could take it away. It has it can do that, but only if I agree. So the only way those things become real is if I go in and go, yes, I'm voting against my own self-interest. And so when I was able to like navigate the detail and work through that detail with the bank, they're like, all right, I get it. It's weird and it's unusual. We don't normally see these, but you know, in this instance, we we can help, you can explain that the risks we would typically associate with these types of properties. The second risk, which is a still an ongoing one. Not even risk challenge is the valuers battle massively with this title, and even like if I want to do something now, I think the place is worth infinitely more than what I bought it for. Because it's like if someone said that you can own a four hundred square meter, you know, rooftop, no unobstructed, like in Sydney, I've got you know two, two, two kilometers from the city. Like the idea that in Sydney that's worth one point three doesn't like.
1: Is the title for this property still a problem for Turner?
0: I haven't won that battle and I, I don't know how I'm gonna resolve that. I think eventually I may need to to change the way the title works. I just don't want to give up the right to, to be able to develop the property up here because that will add more value than the title. Um so I don't know what the solution is. The value is when you buy it, they ask the value to come in and the value says, Well, you paid, you know, one point three for it, so it must be worth one point three. Um, but that can be that's challenging. I don't know how you get around that to be honest. But it's pretty unusual.
1: Any advice for future property investors?
0: My sort of thesis with property investing is and this might be counter to some of the prevailing wisdom which is get one property that you live in and continue to invest in that and make that better. That's a very tax effective way to, to grow wealth through property is to buy buy and invest in your own home and then sell it and move every 3 or 4 years and you know you can upgrade and do well and you pay no capital gains tax and then maybe have one investment property, you know? one that you've they've got that you just that it just pays itself over and eventually there's a two bedroom house or a one bedroom apartment, whatever whatever your level of, of comfort is. A thing that 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 and you can between those two things, most people can generate more than enough, you know, wealth over their lifetime to then be comfortable in their retirement without anywhere near the level of headache that you have if you go out and have seven apartments and blah blah blah. So my thesis is always, you know, invest in your own home. And live in it and make it something that you would love and do that over a period of time. And then when it makes sense, sell it and buy something bigger if you can, you know, or less if you don't need it. Um, And then one investment problem.
1: (laughs) Turner seeks to create a solution for the property transaction process involving three steps.
0: PlanWise was pretty singularly focused on this idea that at the moment you make a big decision, if you don't know how that decision will affect you in the future, then you're not that. Uh, you're probably not making a good decision. You might get lucky, but you probably will be unlucky. Uh, and so what we built was actually a set of tools and engines, if you like, that enabled us to produce that outcome. When we brought it back to you know, the ethos came with, which is we've got to help people do this better. You know, everyone in the industry is focused on the mortgage product. What you need to be focused on is the property transaction, you know. You, I can get you a super cheap rate. If you buy the wrong property, that doesn't count for shit, right? And so, I think so. what came back was a set of core IP that allowed us to build financial models, for want of a better word, and an ethos that said, let's help people do better at um, at this whole 30 years, 30, 40 years of owning property and debt and generating wealth um, through, through that kind of maxim and look the 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 part of the process that you're talking about which is the how do we do things differently in that moment when you're transacting there's sort of three parts to the customer journey and we do them really well or as good as the rest in varying degrees so like the bit where you don't want to talk to someone yet and you just want to go in and do your own research and read some content or sign up to a tool like loan score which monitors your current loan all that stuff we're doing really really well and we believe that it should be widely available Um, Like we believe that essentially you should have the same access to the the kind of tool that a broker has so you can learn for yourself and get access to the level of insight that you might have and it makes it super transparent. It makes it more competitive from a lender perspective. Um, So that's sort of self-serve research piece, that's the first part of it. The second part, which is where you say, I've done all that research and now I need to do something um, or now I want to do something I'm not really sure what to do, so I need to give you, you know, enough information so you can help me. And that part of the process we've now digitised. You can use a device like this and you can give us information over about a five- to eight-minute period and that will be the vast, vast majority of the info we need to, to let you know how we can help you and what you could do or what you should do. Um, and that takes away a lot of the initial kind of, all right, just fill out this fact find for me or you know, I'm going to need to see a couple of slips. We ultimately need all that stuff but to get you to a point where we're like, hey, you know, you got some options here and here's what those options look like. If you go through that process on your phone in about five to seven minutes, we can have a very rich and meaningful conversation with you as a broker and it's only to get you to a point of this is what you should do that we need a few more documents. You know, we're going to need to see a couple of slips, a bit of your bank statements to understand what your actual spend history is The stuff that legally we're required to do. And again, making that easy. Okay, well, if you want to give us bank statements, well, great. Go over to this link and connect your bank accounts and that's how we get them. Um, If you want to upload documents, well, it's mobile optimised. We'll send you a link, open it on your phone, take photos and send the documents to us so you don't have to find a printer and a scanner and these kind of things. So in that stage two, it's making it far more optimal to get to the point where we're like, this is what we're doing. Um, The third part is the bit where we actually put it with a bank. Now, we do a bunch of the heavy lifting in the background like brokers do generally. And so, realistically, a lot of what we can do is driven by what the lenders enable us to do digitally. And I think a lot of what our role is isn't just to do that, but to say, hey, there's three lenders here. One of them requires you to go to Australia Post. The other one uses zip ID who come to your home to ID you. Is that important to you? Because if it is, we'll go with the lender who's going to be far more digital. If you don't care and this one's slightly cheaper, then maybe you'll happily go to Australia Post. And so whilst we can't tell all lenders to use zip ID or some other online identification, we can at least let customers understand these are the good ones from a digital perspective and these ones less so.
1: So do you really save money switching from manual services to digital? It might be like 10 or 20 bucks a month kind
0: of thing for someone with an average loan. And you might go, oh, well, that adds up. I'm like, yeah, but you don't even know how it's going to play out. The lender that's cheaper at the moment might be more expensive six months from now. You know, if like, if you don't do it, it's going to be the biggest impact. Either of these options is going to save you money, so you should definitely do it. This one will require you to get in your car three times and find justice of the peace, right? This one doesn't need that. So, you know, like, and what we ultimately want to do, obviously, is have the lenders who are better at being digital get more of the business because customers want that. That's part of the proposition. It's not all about rate. It's about, you know, service and proposition and speed to decision, and typically the digital guys turn stuff around faster because they've got less manual across their whole business, not just your interaction with it.
1: And why is this process so long?
0: And look, I think there's there's definitely an acknowledgement that some some deals are necessarily difficult, you know, uh, because it, like everything's okay except for this one thing. You know, a deal that I'm across at the moment, uh, the person has been in the same industry for 10 years, but they took a couple of years out to, to have a kid. Perfectly normal, went back to work and got a contract six months ago and are now um, getting a new contract. All right? And so, in the process of they're about to go and land a new contract. And so, a lender rightly so is saying, Well, I, I trust that you can get employment. But as it stands today, you've got a few weeks left on your current contract and you haven't got a confirmation of your new contract. So, it's hard for me to approve until you can prove to me that you're going to have a contract in two weeks' time. And I think lending has, is, there's always a gotcha, you know, and a lot of what has to happen is in those interactions it's hard for i don't think it's impossible but it is hard for an algorithm to to be able to understand the lvr is okay the credit history is okay the servicing's fine but they've only been in their job for six months and they're about to renew their contract in this instance so someone has to take that into account and go all right that's okay or not okay um so I get that there is manual involved a lot of the time these, I think ultimately you could build an algorithm that would say, well, you approved this last time and this is 99% the same, why wouldn't you do it this time kind of thing um, but you know, the lenders aren't there yet.
1: Will digital services like Turner's, PlanWise and Uno replace brokers in the future?
0: Right now, there is robots that can do surgery better than humans in every count. The surgery is better, they can do it for 12 hours a day without getting tired, 24 hours a day without getting tired. Um, but would you trust that robot to be doing it without a human in the room at the moment? Right. Now, now when cert- mortgages aren't rocket surgery, but there is certainly an ar- argument that the, the, the decision is big enough that a human wants a validation and comfort from another human being. And we think that a lot of what the role of a broker will ultimately be is, is, a, is a, someone who is dealing with this all the time to help you understand that the decision you're making is a good one and to synthesize something a computer can work out and generate in a fraction of a second into human terms. And I'll give you a good example, a guy who's a customer of ours and I'm not a broker per se in terms of I don't actually do the broking, but he's kind of my customer. Like He comes to me, he's like, hey, where do you think interest rates are going? You know, And he's having a human conversation with me. He wants to understand whether he should sell a house because he might come back. He's coming back in a few years, doesn't think he'll be in that house is trying to it's a there's a personal narrative here that's happening in the conversation with another human is around that personal narrative and the framing is what mortgage decision should I make, right? And what I think will happen is that you will see a lot less mortgage brokers because the technology will take away a lot of the things that they need to do. But you will other than for straight refinances, which is just as long as this gives me the same as what I have now and it's cheaper, yes, just automatically refinance me. Yes, that'll happen. But as soon as there's a transaction as in I'm thinking about using my equity to buy another place, you know? Or I, I wanna we wanna renovate, you know, we're thinking of downsizing, whatever the as soon as there's a, a transaction typically associated with a kind of a human transaction, as in something that happened in your life, like having kids, getting married, you know, losing your job, whatever the thing is, I think the human element will play a critical role in in, in that part of the equation. There just won't be as many of those humans doing it.
1: So what's so important about mortgage brokers?
0: When the decision is entirely rational, like, Hey, you have a product. This product costs you a thousand. This one costs you nine hundred. They're equivalent products. Would you like to not spend a thousand and spend nine hundred instead? And that's it. Then you don't need a human. Of course you don't need a human. Right. Um, but at the point where you're like, Hey, I'm thinking of doing X and X will require me to change my mortgage situation. The conversation is not really about the mortgage. It's about should we sell our home? You know? I think the mortgage brokers that will do best, are the, like in all industries, this isn't just mortgage broking, will be the people who have curiosity, um, innovation, like can, can do things creatively, like think creatively, and empathy. And if you have good empathy and EQ, then people will want to make big decisions with your advice. Um, and that's the, the best thing anyone in a service industry, financial services or otherwise, and broking included, um, will likely find themselves in the next you know, five to 10 years.
1: Coming up after the break, we hear about Turner's advice on the mentors he had in the course of his career.
0: I think there is a lot of value in identifying someone and formalizing a relationship with them.
1: His recommendations on some forms of meditation. One thing you
0: do need to do is you need to take your, your down at alpha and theta or whatever levels down. You basically need to be not thinking, you need to be clearing your head, you need to be doing what a Buddhist is doing.
1: And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Story. Turner talks about what motivates him and what customers get out of his services.
0: When I first pitched to Westpac in 2015, I basically said you should be able to go through the entire mortgage process with any bank on this device. You know, that was kind of my pitch to them which is quite rational and functional and you know, a lot of people are like yeah, that's what I want, I want it to be so simple I can do that Um, but in terms of the why, I think a lot of our thinking we're just getting through at the moment with this is that we're elevating our kind of vision for you know is that we want to have the happiest home loan customers in the world Now that might sound like whatever or you know counterintuitive but like happiness takes a lot of forms right there's a happiness that is like yeah happy right that kind of happy but there's happiness just kind of content or you know that is kind of you you know it's being taken care of you 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 know you you sleep easy at night this level of happiness where you it's just not a thing you have to worry about um, is is a lot of that thinking, which is, you know, if if our if we can aspire to that, then people will be like, you know what, I don't have to to invest any of my headspace in worrying about whether this thing's any good at any level, whether the product's good, whether I bought the right place, what happens if I lose my job, whatever the thing is that that takes you away from actually living your life, is kind of the the motivational space that we're playing in. There's Five million people in Australia who all have homes and have mortgages attached to them uh so there's a lot of people in australia that this impacts and the mortgage tends to be the biggest single line item in your expenses on a monthly basis in fact we did a report which we can leave a link or whatever for people um called a household wastage report we've reframed interest as a form of waste and we found out after food mortgages are the biggest form of waste where you're overpaying on your mortgage no different to throwing out food or getting parking tickets right and so You've got a a problem that's highly emotive for a large number of Australians and I think the the systemic thing that we have to think about is households that go into financial stress, whether they're not making a lot of money or making lots of money, either or, um, are not good for the house. They're not good for the people living in, ultimately not good for community. And so if you you can actually make people's households stronger by, you know, through our goal of having the happiest home loan customers in the world, then this is good for people and it's good for communities, you know. And so that's a big part of the motivation. That is the motivation.
1: And what does the future look like?
0: We're still early in our journey. I think we've got a long way to go, which is good, right? The work's never done. Um, But I think it's good having a true north. Um, We're playing to our strengths now. We've got some, we've basically got, you know, some of the best technology in the market and we're using it to to make people's lives easier and better. Um, And it's a really big financial problem for people on a day to day basis. And if that can be less of a problem for people and people can, you know, Like most people ultimately are elevating to uh, some form of financial freedom um, and some form of financial security, as in the the freedom to do what they want and security to provide for themselves and their immediate family. And a household, uh, you know, a mortgage and the property associated with it can be a massive part of doing that. And so if we can play our role well, then we can. You know, contribute very positively to that higher-order need that people have and that's a, that's a good thing to be getting up every day and doing.
1: Has Turner had any mentors over the course of his career or been given any memorable advice?
0: I've never had formal mentors and I, I think that might be a failing on my part to be honest. I think there is a lot of value in identifying someone and formalizing a relationship with May not be paid but something that says we're going to meet every month. And so many people I know who I admire and are successful in whatever measure um, have that situation. I think what I've had in turn have been um, really important people at particular moments. Um, so as a really good example, there's a, a lady, uh, Tristan Langley is her name, uh, and she worked at a company that was potentially going to invest in Pisces, the mortgage software business that had some great IP and, and some great customers, but ultimately were a you know all over the shop of the business. And she didn't go on to invest. And then I left that business and decided I was going to move to Silicon Valley. And she split her time between. Sydney and Silicon Valley a venture firm she worked for made investments here and there and when I got there she she's like look, honestly you got to go back into tech you, you're good at tech you just you were solving the wrong problem um with the wrong people in the wrong city like just like rethink that stuff and be a little more you know intentional about what you're doing and I was going there to do industrial design I ended up going and starting plan wise and so I think like that that moment was a really kind of critical kind of moment Um, for sure, and I've had maybe half a dozen of those conversations. I think the advice, I guess, is not necessarily go and get a mentor but be open to to those moments, you know, this idea that you have someone and we're still great friends. I don't speak to her as often as I I should but um, she was there in that particular moment for that particular reason. Um, So I think that's certainly a thing. In terms of uh, resources, though, one of the, like a big part of my go-to, as odd as this sounds, is just TED Talks. Every time I've had a really low moment where I've doubted myself, like you, you think you're having a bad day, go and listen to some of the people who are giving TED talks and work out and hear where they're coming from. I and there's some of these people like, oh, you know, I was grew up in the war torn parts of Somalia and I was carrying a gun for the first seven years. And people are fucking amazing. Like my life should be relevant compared to what these people are doing. Um, I find that super motivating and informative.
1: When hearing the stories of people who have been in much worse circumstances than himself, Turner gains a new perspective.
0: Resilience is super, super critical, you know, awareness is super critical. I read 40, 50 books a year, you know, I'm, I'm literally reading a, a book a week kind of thing. Um, half of them are fiction, they're just to get me to bed. The other half are things from, you know, really interesting reads. Like, there's a book at the moment I'd recommend to people, um, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Like great book, I forget the, how to pronounce the author's name but… Um, you know, there's like, there's like those things I think are really good. I also listen to a lot of kind of guided meditation. Um, I don't do meditation by myself but guided meditation I think is a really useful thing for reflection. Most of the high-energy like, CEOs, founders or whatever I know are doing some form of meditation.
1: Turner recommends some forms of meditation.
0: I use it very specifically at night. Um, the part of the problem with an active mind is switching off. And if you don't switch off, you don't sleep. If you don't sleep, your ability to do anything becomes terrible and you become terrible to be around. Uh, and that often leads to other challenges that become endemic and problematic. Uh, so being good at sleep is a, is a learned skill in my opinion. And You can set up the conditions pretty nicely. Don't watch TV at 8 o'clock at night if you want to go to bed at 9 o'clock you know dimming on all your devices turn off all your notifications don't have any devices in your bedroom like there's a whole bunch of things that you can do to create good context for sleep um, but one thing you do need to do is you need to take your, your gamma alpha theta or whatever levels down you basically need to be not thinking you need to be clearing your head you need to be doing what a Buddhist is doing and if you go and learn meditation you can absolutely get to that state with nothing right you can just go there and commit to stopping thinking the thing I find that's interesting with guided meditation is that it gives you something to think about and nothing else. And that, that has a similar effect for me at least. Um, and so there's a, a particular one that I would call out. Um, it's on YouTube and it's free um, as a result. It's called uh, a guy called Jason Stevenson, who I think he's actually Australian. And he does these kind of one-hour to three-hour guided sleep meditations. And there's a whole range of them for wherever your head's at kind of thing. Um, and I use those three or four nights a week I would say and I use them in moments where I can't sleep if I wake up and I need to get back to sleep um, and I find that as a, as a really solid base for that and I've gone and listened to other ones as well. Um, I've tried to do just meditation without that. I'm just not as good at it and maybe I'd get better if I tried harder but uh, I'm happy, to, happy
1: with Jason. <laughs> Does he also find exercise meditative?
0: We now have a treadmill in the house and like running and I'll probably actually go and do that after this. Running is a great form of meditation. But it's not a great thing to do before bedtime because it charges you up.
1: Any advice he would give himself ten years ago?
0: I don't know. From a commercial perspective, like with regards to business and property and the stuff that is in that context, um, I, I think the thing that I would love to have been doing better ten years ago, and therefore would say this, um, is to get better at understanding um, people. You know, I, I think I've always been reasonably good at selling. Um, you know, it's not like just, just like getting people to come and join, like people like, oh, I want to go and work with that guy or invest in that guy or whatever. Um, but I think the act of getting people to actually be productive in and of their own right um, and people management, hiring well, um, firing well, like, I had to break up with a co- found, few co-founders, right? And that, that set of skills is, is infinitely, massively important. Whether you're a founder or not, and I think the ten year ago version of myself wasn't very good at, at people. wasn't good at people management. My attitude was, well, if you want to work for me, come and work for me. And if that's and if you do want to work for me, that's my only bar as to whether you should come and work for me. Is if you want to be here, then I want you to be here. And like I think that you know that was a that was a mistake, and I think I've I've cost myself a lot of um, progress by not being good at um, creating. You know, high-performing teams and high-functioning teams, and um, the team you know at the moment is is, oh, is high-performing, high-functioning, and it, and it works well as a team. And Google Google did a bunch of studies on this, right? Where they they um, they realised that you know teams where people can be vulnerable and and have provided divergent views and and they navigate those views and resolve land at a resolution that people have agreed to, not by force but by coming along for the journey, kind of thing. Is really really valuable, and so that's what I tell myself.
1: And in his personal life,
0: you know, what do you know, I'd, I'd tell my personal self, my personal self outside of work, was keep doing random things. So much of the stuff that brings me joy or has opened a door or created even a business opportunity has been because I've done something random. You know, I've got on a plane for no real reason. You know, like I have a son now, and the only reason I have a son is because I got on a plane because someone I met at a wedding in Greece said you know lived in a city and i went oh that sounds like a cool city i should come visit i went there and met someone and then we have a child like like go and do random stuff and don't like oh well why do why am i doing this who cares just do it do it anyway like that's where the spice of life comes
1: what does the next five years look like for turner
0: um customers are telling us that they really like what we're doing the team's really sort of you know, every month we, we get better and better at delivering that thing. Um, and I think for the next three to six, maybe even 12 months, we will be hyper hyper focused on the delivery of this idea that we should have the happiest home loan customers in the world. And that, as you know, externally that might sound tripe, but internally people are like, what do we need to do for that to be reality? So our customers absolutely rave about us. Um, and that's the thing we have to do. That's the only thing we have to do because that is the key to success in a lot of these, in any business really, is that people will tell other people about it and that's how you scale these things long-term. Um, and the motivation to come in and do that is super high. Um, so I think within, you know, in the, in the near term, no no movement away from that. I think in practical terms, it means we're not probably going to do all the, some big bang stuff like we've done the last couple of years. We've done that. What we're going to do is invest in all the little things that make it not as good as it could be and just make that better and better and better. Every week, ship new stuff or change the way we ask questions or you know, change what we ask so that we don't have to ask as many questions, whatever that thing is, so that over time people are like, wow, I don't know what it is, but this thing's just better. It makes me happier. It makes me feel, sleep better at night or whatever the measure is. Um, first thing we have to do is come up for a measure of happiest online customers if we haven't done yet, by the way. Uh, And so I think that, and then in the long term, I think we're setting ourselves up for um, the technology being far more broadly applied um, further down the funnel. So, further down the process of of a mortgage. So, digitizing through to the point of decision and even settlement. Um, That's clearly part of our value proposition is that we want you to be able to be on the best loan all the time. And that's part of what makes you happy. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. And so, how the investments that we make in technology to make sure that the lenders who want to provide that kind of outcome are lenders who are working with, you know, is, is a, another big part of the, what we have to do. In fact, a lot of my focus in the next few years is on bringing lenders, more lenders into the fold so that 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 we have lenders on our panel who do things that you just can't get elsewhere. Um and that will bring, you know, that will help reaffirm that if you come to us, you're going to get an amazing outcome and an amazing experience.
1: How much of your success is due to skill, intelligence, and hard work, and how much of it do you think is because of luck?
0: So I think you know, the intelligence takes a lot of forms. So I have, uh, I'm intelligent in some areas that are incredibly useful in what I do. I think I can't remember the exact word, but Steve Jobs talks about this idea that you know, a founder has to basically um, bend reality they have to get people to believe stuff that's not real oh i want all my songs to fit in this tiny little device you know like people have to go well how the hell are we going to do that right and he has to convince people that that's possible and then you know so i think that's a a skill slash intelligence that i have that's critical to what i do um and that has been critical i've had you know the first investor in plan wise was a guy i met at a festival you know like like to be able to convince someone who you met at a festival and have spent a bit of time talking to, you know what, I need 14 grand. I don't have it because I'm completely out of money. And if I don't know how to get it, I can't get on stage in New York in seven weeks. Um, I think that's a a critical skill and it attracts talent, it attracts capital, it attracts partners. And so I think that that part of it I would put down to a skill or an intelligence. Um, I think a, a big part of the other thing that you have and anyone can choose to have this in them is the perseverance you know, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who was like, nothing in the world will replace perseverance. If you just keep at it, then eventually you will get lucky, right? And that that luck part can play out in the first day or day 10,000. You just don't know. But if you do keep at it, eventually what's going to happen is you're going to get a break, right? And that break in my context, one of the breaks was that when I came back to Australia, I had intended to to launch an online mortgage-broking business, which has now evolved into, you know, as an active homeowner manager. but And Westpac at that time was interested in backing an entrepreneur who wanted to do that. That was lucky. Yes, it was. Did it take me 15 years of building mortgage software, going to the valley, learning everything I know, raising capital? Westpac was already a customer for five bits of software I'd built in previous companies. Yeah, those things had all happened. The lucky moment was when that all those universes collided to Hey, at this moment, we need this person to do this job and we're going to write a check to do that. So, luck plays that role, but the other ones sort of give you the opportunity to be lucky, I think.
1: Turner was prepared for when those opportunities present themselves.
0: But I think the perseverance thing is probably, you know, you can only be as, as you can always improve your skills. Um, you, it, most people have a certain knack for a certain thing, whatever that thing is, you know. Um, and so, you have to play to those strengths and understand what the ones that you don't, you aren't good at, like people and things like that that I need to get better at Um, but the lucky part comes typically through um, perseverance.
1: Thank you to Vincent Turner, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about his journey and get a copy of the show notes on the website, head over to propertyinvestory.com forward notes and download it today. Thanks for listening.